All right, well, we will uh, go ahead and get started. And as uh, Pastor Bader said, um, as it was getting closer to coming out, I had asked what Berg did for a topic. So just having a little fun with that. He laughed. He thought it was funny when I told him. <clears throat> um, well, we're going to be ambitious today. We're going to have more than six words. Um, and so if you have a pew Bible handy or your own Bible, uh, we're going to be doing a big survey um, so the hope is maybe you uh, take this as an occasion later when you get home sometime uh, to look at uh, the first half of Genesis. Um, I've just been teaching Genesis in 110. I've been working through Genesis in some meetings that we've had. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Berg and I are podcasting on the early chapters of Genesis right now. So I've had Genesis on the mind. And one of the things that's interesting with Genesis is it's kind of like our gospel text today, the Holy Gospel, which can really be misread. Um, you can have people who take it very different ways. Um, we, we get today the Sermon on the Mount, right? And lots of people will take that and say, okay, this is our list of what to do. Let's go do all this stuff. <clears throat> um, Genesis, you can have people who come at it in, in a thousand different angles. Um, and it's interesting to me, especially how people can read Genesis. Um, and it becomes, I used to joke with my Sunday school teachers, please don't kill Genesis. <clears throat> and it comes with just a bunch of lessons of be like this person. But then we only read the chapters where you, could, you should be like that person. We don't read the chapter where Abraham says his wife is his sister and sets her up um, to be part of uh, Pharaoh's harem. Um, we, uh, we kind of miss those, or where Sarah says, we'll have a child with my maidservant, since God is taking too long. <clears throat> and so what we're going to do is just kind of walk through, and I have these terms in a very intentional order, um, but the thought is to get how in Genesis, and thus how in general, God deals with people, how he deals with you um, and with me. One of the things I, I usually tell my students um, is as you, uh, if you're ever going through Genesis with someone, some, with someone sometimes, um, sometimes confessional Lutherans, um, with good reason, can kind of do a somewhat unhelpful thing, though. Um, confessional Lutherans who've, like, seen the battle for the Bible happen in America, um, and so I want to be very clear about what Genesis gives us is an actual account of creation, a literal one-day, two-day, three-day account, which is good. We want to defend that, but we can sometimes let people off the hook too easy if we give the impression that if someone struggles with that, well, then the whole Bible is just thrown out, that it's that or nothing, because what Genesis says about God and people in the world, whether or not one struggles with a six-day creation, is hard to get around. <clears throat> in fact, you look at something like Genesis 3 and even Mark Twain, who was not a big fan of Christianity, said, Genesis 3, original sin is the most empirically objectable, obje objective, provable doctrine in Scripture. All you have to do is deal with people. <clears throat> and you can see that we're that were fallen. And so when Moses <clears throat> writes Genesis and the whole Pentateuch, he's writing to people in the ancient Near East. And the ancient Near East was a difficult place to be. Um, sometimes people look at the Old Testament and they say, why was God like that? It wasn't so much God was like that, the people were like that, and God had to use the people. And so you look at some of the things God says not to do, like offer your children in sacrifice. And we go, well, who would do that? Well, uh, when I study the Reformation, one of the ways you figure out what was actually happening during the Reformation is what preachers are saying not to do. They wouldn't be saying not to do it if no one was doing it, right? <clears throat> um, and so as we look at Genesis, Moses is putting things in terms that people would understand um, in a way that they could relate. And he's doing some pretty amazing things, and so that's what we're going to talk about. You have on the back one of my famous paintings. It's by Lucas Cronish. Uh, he, um, uh, he lived in Wittenberg with Luther. 
Um, he became a convinced Lutheran. Like Luther, he struggled with melancholy or depression. Um, he was a famous painter. He was for a while town mayor. He was the pharmacist, so he was the Wittenberg drug dealer. Right? <clears throat> he was a jack of all trades, a Renaissance man. And this painting is called Law and Gospel. Um, and he writes this based on Luther's preaching. And you have Adam and Eve on one side being driven out of the garden. And yet on the other side, you have Adam being pointed to the Christ, who is here pictured as crucified and risen, Christ, the fulfillment of his ministry. And um, I'm not going to belabor the painting today, but maybe something to think of um, through the week, if you do take a look at Genesis, is see how many themes from there you can find in here. No one is going to accuse Cronish of being, um, you know, the... the best Renaissance painter as far as how he images everything. Um, but he's probably, in my view, one of the best Reformation painters for having art that is catechesis, that is, that is teaching something. And so, to go to our sheet, and if you want to follow along in your Bible, as we survey, you're fine, but I'm not going to be quoting verses and whatever else in too much detail. <coughs> that being said, I should get out my Bible so I at least look like a responsible preacher. <coughs> Yeah, the I wish. I wish. My students catch me all too often. Um, but if we think of creation, and so the, think of this as Johnston's tour of Genesis. So I, I come to visit California, and, and the, maybe someone shows me the things that stand out to them that they like. This is Johnston's tour of. So I, we're driving along, and I'm saying, hey, here's this. So we're going to jump over some stuff. Um, but notice that the word that I want to start there with for Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2 already, is grace. One of the ways people misread Genesis is they think that Genesis 1 and 2 was some sort of law paradise where Adam and Eve were righteous because they behaved, because they did. And sometimes people think that because what was Adam and Eve's worship? It was they were given one command. Luther says their church was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they worship God. That's the one command they're given. And so what do they do? They ruin the church. And then what does ruining the church do? It ruins the state because they turn on each other and now we have Cain and Abel and murder, right? <clears throat> but it's important to remember Adam and Eve weren't created and then God said, be righteous, Adam and Eve were created and they were gifted with righteousness. They were made good, very good. They were put in a right relationship with God. They had, and if you have Berg out enough times, he's going to start talking about this. It's one of his things. They had shalom, wholeness, peace, human flourishing. And so, to use a Burbank illustration, what does God do in Genesis 1? He sets the stage. Imagine this is Seinfeld back in the day. So he sets up the apartment, Jerry's apartment. He creates this beautiful world. Each day is something. Each day is something. And who is it something for? It's something for us. And then once it's created and it's good, it's tov, it's very good, it's tov ma'od, he puts Adam in it. And it's gift. It's grace. There is no one who has ever, from the very beginning, had a relationship with God that was not based on grace, <clears throat> on gift. God gives what he does. The second word, you'll notice there, well, how does God deal with us in grace? There's only two ways you can know God, his word and his works. And so the heavens declare the glory of God. <clears throat> this is where um, you may hear people, especially here out on the West Coast, um, where there's lots of fun, beautiful things to do, where someone maybe even says, the closest I've ever felt to God outside of church, or maybe they even leave out the outside of church, was in nature. <clears throat> we can only know God through his word and his works, but we can't relate to God through his works. We can only relate through his word. <clears throat> And so God creates the world, and what does he do? 
How does he set the stage in Genesis 1? Genesis 1 is big creation. Genesis 2 is zoom in. So you're watching the football game. You pause it, you rewind, you zoom in on the play, right? Um, and so uh, how does God relate and create is with word. He says, let there be. Let there be light. Does he persuade the light? <clears throat> hey, light, it'd be really great if you'd be light and shine. He says, let there be light, and there is light. And you know why there's light out there today? Because God said so. That word is still what upholds all light. This let this be. He speaks. And so when Jesus appears to the frightened disciples after his resurrection, he speaks. He speaks absolution. Forgiveness. And so what has God called your pastor to do but to speak? Yes, be handsome, have nice hair, wear fancy clerical tennis shoes. <coughs> I was jealous of those. I was going to wear my comfortable shoes today. I'm like, nope, Vader's way liturgical. I better not show up. He's got clerical Nikes. <coughs> yeah. But pastor speaks. He puts words in your ears. And what do those words do? They do what they say. They are creative. God works through those words. And you are what you're told you are. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. So God only deals with us in grace. He gives gifts. The difference between belief and unbelief is just the unbelief doesn't see it as gift. It turns it into idol and it ruins it. You guys ever do this? I've done this in every stage of my life because I'm a sinner, if you didn't know. I've turned every good thing at some point into an idol. When I finish this, then I'll be happy. When I get that, then I'll be happy. When I do this, then I'll be happy. You have kids. When my kids do this, then I'll be happy. And what do we do? We take gift and we turn it into idol and we sap the joy out of it. And what does God have to do to us sometimes? <clears throat> he has a step back and he reminds us it's gift. God deals in grace with gifts. God deals with words. He primarily wants your ears. He wants you to see with your ears. One of my favorite stories of my dad from grade school, uh, <coughs> he went to St. Michael's Catholic grade school. I went to St. Robert's years later. And we had a pretty good nun. We still had nuns, and we had a pretty good nun principal. Her name was Sister Claude Marie. And she was what you would expect with that name. And <coughs> she was terrifying. And I remember one day my buddy Brian got a haircut back then. You'd get the lines in your hair. That was cool. And that was against the handbook. And over the PA came Brian. I won't say his last name. Please come to Sister Claude Marie's office. And he came back with his head shaved. She shaved his head. And a lesson was learned. My dad has an even better one. My dad sometimes could zone out as a kid. Probably still can. <coughs> and uh, one day, they were on the second, third floor at St. Mike's, a school, one of those schools that's more high than wide. And um, wasn't really listening. The windows opened like that, and, and, and the nun got him by the ear, and she stuck his head out the window and said, Can you hear me now, Johnny? Can you hear me now, Johnny? Well, sometimes God does that, too. He takes us by the ear. We've turned gift to idol, grace to work. He takes us by the ear. He speaks word. And so when Adam and Eve fell, what did God do? He speaks. He give the, gives them word. He gives them promise. You'll notice in Genesis 1 and 2 that God is creator. In the beginning was God. That's all there is. And the Spirit's hovering. Why is the Spirit hovering? Because the Spirit makes alive. That's how you came to faith, by the way. It was by the Holy Spirit. God is creator. What are we? We are creature. Now, we live, uh, after several hundred years of people fighting back against that, we've had modernity and post-modernity, and you can forget those words. Almost nothing good gets said after someone pretends they know what those words mean. <coughs> but we have really not wanted to be creature. We were all optimistic for a while as human beings. We were going to end war. We were going to get rid of disease, right, the 20th century. And instead, what did we do? 
the whole world went to war. Well, you think you do that once and you go, okay, yeah, that was a bad idea. <clears throat> Never do that again. Wasn't but a couple decades, what did we do again? We went to war. <clears throat> um, but we really can struggle with the creation creature. Um, especially in the West, many of us um, are uh, immersed in a culture that just refuses to acknowledge that distinction. We are seen to be self-creating. Notice Adam and Eve are, have a world that's created for them. They're placed into it. You notice in Genesis, no one names themselves. They all get named. Adam is named for how he's created. <coughs> Adam names Eve. Adam names the animals. Adam and Eve name Cain and Abel and Seth. They're creature, they're recipient of grace. <clears throat> they're situated in relationship to creation and each other and to God. One of the joys of faith, what faith does, is faith lets us rejoice to be creature. There's the, uh, right, the, the famous, um, the creed of, of Islam. Um, there's only one God and Muhammad is his prophet, right? I think a helpful uh, creed for Christianity in our day would be there is one God and you are not him. <coughs> or you are not her. <coughs> to recognize we are creature is to be able to rejoice and delight in the giftedness of the world. The world has not and it never will depend on you. The church has not and it never will depend on me. God will use me. God will use pastor. God will gift us with many wonderful things. He will use you in the church. I'm sure he's used you today in ways you don't even know. But God will be creator. God will be the one who gives you who you are, who makes you light. God will be the one who provides. And so Genesis very early on reminds us that the Christian life is not how so many people present it. <clears throat> so I come to faith and I'm dependent on God, but then... We talk about this as progress and sanctification. <clears throat> but to do that, you have to use sanctification in a way different than Paul uses it. <clears throat> okay. And so I'm dependent on him now, but each day I'm going to become a little less dependent on God. Like we hope kids will. You raise kids, but at a certain point you're like, okay, move out. I hear in California that's really hard, though, because you can't buy houses, right? Milwaukee, you can get a house for like 20 grand in certain neighborhoods. So. <clears throat> um, but you're gonna, I'm going to become more and more independent and I'm going to need mom and dad less and less. That's not the case with God. With God, creator and creature, it's like a plant growing roots. How does a plant growing, how does it grow? Its roots go deeper. We grow by recognizing our dependence upon God more and more and more. And so what did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? I remember one time, one of the first time my parents left my brother and I alone and they... Went out, I think they went to a movie or something, which was a mistake. They raised us. They should know they shouldn't be able to trust us. <clears throat> and it was WWF night before WWE. And that was back when there was Superfly Jimmy Snuka. And he'd whoosh, jump. And uh, we were jumping on each other. We were body slamming. We had a few friends over. They were body slamming. We knocked a plant over. The plant got in my mom's new carpeting. What do you do when you're dumb boys? We tried to vacuum it up. What did the dirt do? Got deeper. What did we decide would be the solution? Water. What did water make? Mud. My mom and dad drove in the driveway. Like four of my friends, terrified, ran out the front door and down the street. My parents must have been like, what happened? They came in, we're like, somehow a plant fell over. <laughs> But what did we do when we messed up? We tried to work. We tried to fix it. What should we have done? We should have just waited for mom and listened. And we probably would have found forgiveness quicker that way. We would have gone without the mini discussion about how stupid we had been. Right? What did Adam and Eve try to do? They tried to fix it. They made stupid clothes. And God said, no, those clothes are no good. And he makes them close. Death comes into the world, but he makes them close. He gives them a word. He gives them a promise of a savior. He's still creator. They're still creation. They had tried to be self-creator. What was the temptation? This is why Genesis 3 is so funny in the temptation. They're made in the image of likeness of God. And yet, what does Satan tempt them with? You will be like God if you do this. They were like God. 
And that's how they lose it, by trying to be creator. So we're creature. Adam and Eve are created righteous. They're renewed in righteousness through faith, through the promise. <coughs> to be righteous is to be right with God. It's to have shalom. How did they have righteousness? As a gift. They didn't earn it. It was a gift. Right at creation, they're created righteous. They're created in the image of God. This is super fun. In the ancient world, who was in the image of God? The emperor or king or warlord and the high priest of whatever religion. <coughs> who does Moses say is in the image of God? All people. This was crazy back in the... Every human being has dignity. This is what, I won't do a long rant on this, but this is where I really frustrate my students sometimes. Because I, <clears throat> I mean, I don't think America is going to last through their lifetime as like one country, but we'll see. <clears throat> and it's not even because I'm like political on the left or the right. My political party is, all the political parties are bad. Uh, <clears throat> it's a member of one, right? <clears throat> but, um, but when we talk about human rights in America, there's two reasons we can talk about human rights in America. The Bible and the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, while they kind of got rid of some of Christianity, they, they kind of cheated because they kept using Christianity's capital. So the notion that everyone has dignity and rights and that they're inalienable through a creator, well, when we've thrown out reason and, Christ and revelation, Christianity, how do you maintain human rights? And so I'll tell my students, why should everyone have human rights? And they throw out all these reasons, and I just dismiss them the same way someone could dismiss them on Twitter. <clears throat> well, for God, I don't believe in God. I mean, I do, but I pretend I don't, right? <clears throat> um, and, uh, and this gets real messy. But the Bible makes clear everyone has human dignity. Even after the fall into sin, even after the flood, we're not in the image of God in the exact same we were, apart, uh, were before the fall. But we still bear it. God says to Moses, whoever sheds blood by man, his blood will be shed. Why? Because we're created in the image of God. And so you have dignity and value simply by being created. And you were created by God. Well, how was that? This is where Christians, I think it's much better for us to use the word procreation than reproduction. Reproduction is a great like industrial revolution word right? Manufacture. What's the, word, what's the central word of reproduction? Product. And what is the world, and especially uh, a, a capitalistic, you know, society very happy to treat you as? As a product. <clears throat> this is the thing with social media. What's the product social media produces? You. They don't make anything to make money off. The algorithms target things to you. So you ever been like, you kind of mention someone as someone and then all of a sudden you get an ad for it the next day and you're like, is Mark Zuckerberg here? <coughs> it shapes you. We're, we're, so, we're treated as products and we're sold products all the time. But the way the church has always spoken of it is procreation. And so, yes, your mom and your dad gave birth. Well, your mom gave birth. Your dad was, he was a trooper. He was supportive, right? <clears throat> uh, but they created you, but through God's creative word, be fruitful and multiply. That creative word is what made you still today. Now, we have blemishes and defects as fallen sinners that we get through human DNA and environmental factors. <clears throat> you know, my uh, side of our house was all asbestos. Growing up, we used to just bang basketballs off there. We'd play all these games. Like with, and then like we got a little older, and it turned out like asbestos was bad. <laughs> You're like, okay, that's unfortunate. You know, kids were eating like lead paint. Turns out lead paint is bad. You know, um, now like all our food has plastic in it. It sounds like, and I don't. Know. <clears throat> um, the defects come from this world, but you, as you who has value, and you who will be you in the resurrection, that's from God who makes you in his image by his creative word through your parents. He loves to use means. Right? You've had Dr. Berg vocation. He wrote a book on it. Right? It's a nice little book. Um, the, uh, so we get the image of God, and yet Adam and Eve are tempted. How are Adam and Eve tempted? I've 
mentioned a little bit, they'll be like God, but what is the what what does the what part of them does the devil capture? Before it says that they looked at the fruit and it was pleasing to the eye, what part of them does he capture? Yeah, and how does he sow it? How does he get the doubt in there? <clears throat> Through the can you hear me now, Johnny? Through the ears. He gets their ears. And temptation at, the co at core gets ears. Um, we can talk about Christians bearing crosses. Sometimes you bear a cross because of your faith. Someone persecutes you because of your faith. But often we bear crosses that have nothing to do with our faith, but they can become crosses when the devil gets our ear. So we get sick. We lose our job. Loved one suffers. And we say, why? God must be mad at me. We come up with a rationale. Devil gets the, Job. Job should be like two chapters long. Why is Job so long? His friends get his ear. His friends give him lousy advice. Just chapter after chapter of lousy advice. And then what does God do? He finally speaks. <clears throat> and Job then is supposed to listen. Temptation then gives birth to sin. There's now sin in the world. God says, if you eat of it, you shall die. Death has come into the world. They don't die immediately. They live a remarkably long time, longer than I would ever want to live in a fallen world. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the, um, But what is sin? Sin is not something that's added to them. Sin is the lack of something. And so sin, an original sin, is the lack of original righteousness. Sin is a disruption in that relationship between God and neighbor, vertical and horizontal. So what do they do? They hide from God, and they're ashamed of being naked. Well, who's seeing them naked? Each other. But that relationship now is disrupted. So sin is a lack of something. Sin is the abuse of a good thing. <clears throat> Growing up, we had... Um, this was before cable, or we were just too cheap to have cable maybe, so our parents didn't care about. I think I was tail end of like, just go run wild in the neighborhood until the lights come on. I remember once there was a rumor, there was like um, an unsavory individual who had moved into the neighborhood. Um, and so all the parents got us these horns that apparently we were supposed to blow like if we were ever gonna get abducted or, I don't know who would've wanted us. We were a wild kid running around in the neighborhood, but. Um, and the horn was a good thing. It was for self-defense. You know what we did with the horns? We made a game. The last person to, to, to not be deaf won. And I remember walking through the park there, and one of my buddies fell down from a tree. You would think this was Vietnam. <coughs> and blowing his horn in my ear. And I probably didn't hear for about 24 hours the same way. <coughs> we abused a good thing, Right? This is part of, of having kids. You give them toys, and toys have a good purpose. But what at some point do your kids do with their toys? If you have one, more than one kid? They beat each other with them. <clears throat> they like Chucky Man, and then there's, you know, um, usually the one sibling that's like, it's not that bad, it's only bleeding a little. Don't tell mom, don't tell mom. Don't tell mom. The famous refrain of having a brother. <clears throat> um, sin is the abuse of a good thing. So we've already had grace. Grace is gift. And now we're going to get mercy. God comes to Adam and Eve. And he gives them what they don't deserve. He gives them mercy. Grace is getting what you don't, or grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And so he protects them. He kicks them out of Eden. And you might say, well, that's not nice. How is that protecting them? He didn't want them to eat of the tree of life. Why not? We'll live forever here. Who wants to do that? Don't get me wrong. I want my flight to land safely in Milwaukee. <clears throat> I want to, I'm hoping to live until a Lions Super Bowl victory. My, my theory is what's going to happen is they're going to get there and there's going to be like 20 seconds left in the game because I live in the land of Packer fans and this is the theology of glory. <laughs> That's why they're not as good at Christians. And, um, <clears throat> but Lions fans, they know the theology of the cross. We know suffering. And every year, hope springs eternal. And my theory is they're going to get to the Super Bowl. There's going to be like 20 seconds left. 
All they got to do is take a knee, they win. Boom, Jesus returns with time still on the clock. <clears throat> and I'll be happy, <coughs> but I'll also be like, that Jesus <coughs> was a good prank, right? Um, but, uh, but mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Um, think of the emperors in ancient Rome. Someone is brought before them who's a criminal, and they say, Clemencia, you live. So gladiator, right? <coughs> if you've ever seen the movie. God deals with them with mercy. How? He gives them a promise. They deserve eternal death. What does he give them a promise of? Genesis 3.15. He gives them eternal life. The Messiah will come. He will crush the serpent head, the serpent's head. Sometimes people get all worked up about, well, what was the snake like? And did all snakes talk? Probably all snakes didn't talk, otherwise Eve wouldn't have listened. It was enough to catch her attention. Then poor snakes got to suffer forever because the devil used a snake slithering on the ground. Um, we get the promise of Christ. This is the mercy. He gives them life in the midst of death. That's what you all have right now. We have life in the midst of death. <clears throat> but he does it by a promise. And this is, we, we were just wrapping up the Old Testament with my freshmen. And I try to drill into them. What's the only thing you can do with a the promise? There's one of two things. <clears throat> yeah, it, well, if you're the one who received it. You can believe it or not believe it. On what basis do you believe or not believe a promise? Do I trust the person who gave it? Adam and Eve then are saved by faith. Abraham is saved by faith. Moses was saved by faith. I gave a paper once at a conference, and this is a different end of the Lutheran spectrum. And so to have fun, I, the paper was Moses the Lutheran. Because this end of the spectrum is very leery of Lutheran being anything special. And so I got to have a little fun. Um, but promises are only received through faith. <clears throat> and so we're given a promise. Noah gets off the ark. He's given a promise. Abraham is called. He's given a promise. And we have Christians who believe through faith, who now have hope. This is the great part of Luther's commentary on Genesis. Eve gives birth to Cain. She says, I've begotten the man. What does she probably mean? This is the Messiah. And parents have been wrong about their kids before. <coughs> but instead he becomes the first murderer. And yet they live by hope. Cain is dead. Abel is dead. Neither of them are called sons, by the way. <coughs> they are sons. But Genesis doesn't say they're sons. Moses says, and then they had Seth, their son, Seth. They just keep having kids. God said there will be a Messiah. Their only grandkids up to that point are Cain's, and they're all bragging about how terrible they are. If Cain's revenge is this much, my revenge is that much, Lamech says. They're building cities and, and becoming increasingly... Their grandkids were the worst. <clears throat> and they have Seth. <clears throat> and that's the first time we're going to start to hear about people walking by faith. They have a church. <clears throat> Adam's a preacher. They have hope. <clears throat> Flood comes. What does God reestablish first? The church. Noah gets off. He sacrifices. He's prophet. He's priest. He's the civil ruler as well. There's only eight people. It's not that high, you know, high of an office. But the church is reestablished. How is the church reestablished? With the promise. God says again, be fruitful and multiply. And think about how reassuring that must have been to Noah. The whole world was just wiped out. And yet God says, make more humans. The Savior would come. We have the church. The church lives by hope. It offers sacrifice. We'll come back to sacrifice, the most ruined Sunday school story in Genesis. Um, we now, though, see there's original sin and human corruption in the world. Original sin just emphasizes what? What does it mean, original sin? That we have original sin. 
<laughs> yeah, it's how the origin of our sin. We're born with it. It's why we baptize babies. I mean, other than it's adorable <coughs> and a great chance for pictures, it's why we baptize infants. We're born with sin. Um, we're born inclined to sin. We're born wanting sin. That doesn't mean we're all bad. Human beings can do great things too. We're objects of God's love, but we're born temptable and, in uh, and um, uh, inclined to sin. Sometimes people will really argue about, well, can something be a sin if someone's born with a condition or not born? Is it sin or not sin? For Lutherans, that's an easy problem. We're all born sinners. Johnston's are, this is, I ride my bike and take the bus as much as I can because Johnston's just are generations of impatient, stubborn people. And you put me behind the wheel of a car and it just is very hard for me to be pastoral. And, um, <coughs> I, I, get, I get very, just, it's unfortunate. <laughs> So it's worth it for me to ride my bike and almost get run over however many times um, or to take the bus and get there a little more slowly um, to not deal with that. Uh, we all are born inclined to different sins. You are tempted to some sins I am. I'm tempted to some sins you aren't. Now, which are the worst ones? In my eyes, usually the worst ones are the ones I'm not tempted to because why would you do those? Which is exactly what Jesus says when he, he says, judge with the, don't judge with a different measure than you use for yourself. When I would hear confessions in the parish, I would always think of my sins as someone confessed theirs. And I found it much easier to forgive. Um, because my sins are what will take me to hell, not someone else's. And it's my sins for whom Christ died as well. So we've got a church that's built on sacrifice because it's full of sinners. We had a professor who used to say, when you get out in the parish, if anybody ever tells you, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites, what do you say? There's always room for one more. <laughs> right? So we, we, we now have a world that's full of sinners, and yet there's a church for these sinners. <clears throat> a church led by Adam, a church led by Noah, a church led by Abraham, a church led by Moses. And this church frees us from the desire to self-justify. What do Cain's descendants do right away? They brag about how great they are. They try to give themselves purpose or meaning rather than receiving purpose or meaning. God justifies us. He gives us purpose or meaning. He gives us promise. And so the same God who comes in judgment, what is judgment for? Judgment is for sin. God is just. Also, though, comes with deliverance. The same waters that drowned so many, saved uh, Noah. And so at baptism, we also often will pray Luther's flood prayer. Do you ever do that one, Noah? <clears throat> that draws that comparison. Um, often God's judgment is also deliverance for some. So the Old Testament is great. God will be like, Israel, ah, I've had enough. I'm going to use the Moabites to punish you. But then he'll be like, you know, and I'm just, I'm just making up names of, people. Now, you know what? The Moabites have punished you enough. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to now use the Edomites to punish the Moabites for punishing you. <coughs> Luther says it's like a father who, who has the rod to spank his child. And um, I don't know. I still got spanked. I don't know how many of you. We even had a paddle that you had to sign afterwards the first time. It had gone on generations and all the cool uncles were on there. <coughs> so you wanted to get at least one licking, right? Um, but Luther says, it's, God is like the father who takes the rod and he says, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me, which you actually know your father loves you when you can see that in his face. You don't believe it at first, but then you can see the sorrow, right, <clears throat> to have to discipline. And then the father throws the rod across the room afterward and says, you stupid rod, why would you do that? <clears throat> because the father wants to be known primarily in love and mercy. So we have a God who brings judgment but a God who is primarily a God of mercy and delivers through it. A deliverer who now deals by covenant and testament. We're getting towards the end here. Throwing a lot. But some of you are going to read Genesis later and then maybe you'll remember some of these. God gives covenant. 
He gave covenant or testament to Adam and Eve. The Savior would come. He gives covenant to Abraham. It's one of my favorite things about the Old Testament. Poor Apostle Paul <coughs> is always having to write all these letters to the congregations he founded. And half the time he has to write and be like, what are you guys doing? Like, how did you even think of that one? I mean, Corinth is just, you know, you can just picture Paul going, I, show me the math. Like, how did you get to this point? Um, and yet Paul writes. Um, and uh, in the Old Testament, God is, is often having to, to do this <coughs> again and again. Um, but Paul has to deal with, um, it, in Galatia, with what, which what were called the Judaizers, meaning they wanted to keep some of Judaism, the Mosaic Law, as part of Christianity. And the big one they said is that if the Gentiles became Christians, they had to be <coughs> circumcised, which would have been terrible for evangelism. I mean, can you imagine, Noah, you've got a family ready to join. They've been through however many weeks of instruction. And then you look at Dad and say, there's just one more thing. <laughs> Baptism is a much easier sell, right? We're going to pour water on you. <coughs> well, they're saying you still have to be circumcised or observe certain dietary laws. That's another thing with Christianity. Most religions are like, eat this, don't eat that. Christianity says, eat what you want, but believe, <coughs> right? So you can go have bacon, whatever, later, <coughs> if you want. Um, but Paul then has to say, you guys are doing this, and you say your father is Abraham. Do you not remember how Abraham was saved before there was ever the Mosaic Law? He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, Paul says in Romans 2. Galatians and Romans, he says this. <coughs> Abraham was a Christian. Before there was a circumcision debate to be had, before there were the dietary laws, we live in a world that is bogged down in rules and laws. And even to a degree in covenants and contracts, but not like the ones we have in Scripture. Um, sometimes people tell me this thing that I simply do not think is true, um, is that the world is becoming more and more lawless. <clears throat> I think we have more laws than we've ever had before. What do we keep? I, I'm not going to pick on California, but in the Midwest, this is one of the things people got to look at. What's everybody always passing? Laws. <laughs> but every time I come out, it doesn't take long for my friends from California to be like, this thing happened. And half the time, why did it happen? Because they passed a law. <clears throat> We multiply laws. I don't even think we have a more immoral world in the sense that morality is gone. We just have a new morality. I'm sometimes not sure what I'm supposed to say or think anymore. And the, 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 um, it can be a big deal. And I don't mean that just like the left might cancel me. I mean even in the church people might cancel me. Well, not here because it's lovely. <laughs> but we've... We've multiplied rules. We've multiplied two-way covenants. I, I am here for you so long as I'm getting something out of it. Reciprocal relationships, quid pro quo abounds. That's even how we just do politics now, right? Everybody uses each other to get what they want, and then they wonder why it doesn't work out in the end. <coughs> you know, I never should have used that guy that I never trusted for that one thing, because it turns out you can't trust him. <coughs> Welcome to the club. What's God's covenant or testament? You get to Genesis 15. You get these animals, they get cut in half. That's a weird thing, but it's where we get the idea of cutting a deal from. Normally you would make this promise, and both people making the promise would walk through the animals cut in half. May it happen to us if one of us breaks it. This is a, that's more than signing a piece of paper, right? Who, who alone walks through? God does. <coughs> with the flame. God gives a one-way covenant. He gives a one-way testament precisely so we can't wreck it, so we can't ruin it. And so, in the upper room, Jesus, who had had Moses say, the life is in the blood, do not eat food with blood in it. Jesus, who now is going to eventually set all food free, says what? Take and drink, this is my blood. 
given or shed for you. The new covenant, which was the oldest covenant, which was the one in which Adam and Eve and Abraham were saved. So we get to Christ. Uh, you'll get to Melchizedek in Genesis, the king of Salem, right? That could be like a series of Bible classes. I'll save that for you. Um, but he's the, the king of Salem, shalom, peace, human flourishing, wholeness. He is also, his name means, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, prince of peace, king of righteousness. This all sounds familiar. <coughs> he has bread and wine. He gives thanks and gives it to them. Abraham pays him a tithe. Um, but what I want to really get to with Christ is Genesis 22. God promises Ad Abram and Sarah they're going to have the heir, the child, through whom the offspring would eventually come. And this starts, Abram's called when he's 75 years old. I'm 45 years old and I'm tired. <laughs> I had two flights to get here the other day. <clears throat> I was pretty wiped. <clears throat> Abram's going to wander. As old... Uh, as an old man and woman. The bear, this Sarah laughs. She says, I'm a bag of bones, right? <clears throat> and it's going to take forever. They're, they're trying to keep the flame of romance alive so the Messiah can come through their line. They get impatient. They try to help God along. In many ways, the Old Testament is the story of the Jews trying to help God along. And God says, well, I don't need your help. And then in many ways, the history of the Christian church is the story of us trying to help God along. And God says, I don't need your help. Um, this is one of the, the joys of being here today. Uh, is, uh, uh, as you come up to communion, there are people actually looking at me. I spent years trying to get my people to look at me when I spoke to them at communion. And I suspect some of you maybe because uh, God's grabbed your ears and you want to hear that good news of what you're being given with God's body and blood. Um, that Christ is, is given to you. What, think of how many of the things you do in the service that it's just given to you. But at the same time, the church can really become busy and try to help God along, right? We can come up with programs for everything. This will fix it. Our synod is just one program away from, from shifting the decline. We'll just come up with the one right video or the one right plan or template. Um, well, what do we get? Finally, they get the kid, they get Isaac. God says, okay, I got something for you to do, Abraham. Abraham, who's been trying to help him along, says, Abraham, enough of trying to help me, the promise along. Now I want you to get in the way of it. And that's really our spiritual gift, isn't it? That's what I'm best at. This is why Luther has us pray in spite of ourselves as pastors. I'm very good at getting in the way. Um, <clears throat> You're going to have Isaac go up the hill. So what does Isaac do? He's going to be the sacrifice and he carries the wood of his own sacrifice up the hill. Silently. Right? Like a lamb goes uncomplaining forth. And he gets up the hill and Abraham is about to sacrifice him. To do this thing that God has elsewhere said not to do this terrible thing. And the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before he's born of Mary, comes and does what? Oh, you got it. Yeah, he stops it. And it doesn't end there. What, what shows up? Ram. Substitute. And God stops Abraham from doing what God Himself will do for you. God stops Abraham from giving His Son, the promised Son. And in return, God will give us His promised Son in sacrifice as Jesus willingly carries the wood of the cross up Calvary and gives himself for us. Now, how does Sunday school ruin this? When the teacher says, the moral of the lesson is have faith like Abraham. Well, if you read these chapters, notice Abraham has some woes too. So having faith like Abraham, 
maybe having a baby mama, like Hagar, right? Um, have Christ like Abraham. Have Christ like Noah. Noah's great too. My students can never wrap their mind around Moses includes Noah gets off the ark, he offers sacrifice, everything's going great, and then what does he do? He, they, he, he makes some wine and gets drunk, gets drunk and passes out naked. You're hundreds of years old. What kind of party was this? Like, I get maybe it had been a while since you had wine, it snuck up on you, but your clothes? And so his son comes in, Ham comes in, and what does he do? He's going to make it go viral. He's going to tell the whole world, all eight people, you should see Dad, our priest and king. And the students go, why does he include that in there? Noah is an example of faith. Noah is an example of faith in Christ. And so what do, um, what, what do the two other sons do? Japheth and Shem, they walk in backwards with a blanket and cover their father's shame. What is the church for? It's for covering sin. It's for forgiveness. It's for mercy. And, and so we see the foibles. Adam and Eve, it appears, spoiled Cain. Luther has a field day with this. Cain gets to be the farmer, which was the more civilized profession. You don't stink like sheep and goats. Cain gets the great name. Cain basically means he's going to be a mover and shaker and make things happen. Abel means he's not going to do much. Imagine being the second kid and that's your name. He ain't going to do much, but he's all right. <laughs> um, Adam and Eve fall short as parents, and yet God gives them Seth, and the line of a Savior through Seth makes it through the flood into Jesus. And so I'll wrap up and we can have questions, but... I would note, I think I have 18 here. Berg gave you six. This is like the Costco of words. I gave you 18 <laughs> for the price of six. <laughs> um, but my hope with this, as you, uh, as you spend your week, maybe take one, put one on the fridge, look throughout the week. If you have time, reading Genesis 1 through 2, 22 will not take long. Read through and maybe just keep the words there and say, where do I see them? And then remember why Moses wrote Genesis. It was to tell you about God and to tell you about you and to tell you about creation and to tell you about the church and most importantly, to tell you about Christ. Um, and then rejoice that God is telling you that he's got you by the ear. Um, and see, yep, see with those ears all week. Yes? I'd like you to repeat again this great why Adam and Eve, why, what made them think that they needed clothes on? They said both of them were naked. Yeah, the idea of, yep, with the fall into sin, we see that our relationships, what is, what does work righteous human religion usually do as well? It dresses us up, Right? The, the early, what was the Tower of Babel? It's probably a pyramid or ziggurat. We're going to build this tower to heaven. <clears throat> it tries to dress up our situation. And so Adam and Eve, um, their nakedness becomes this vertical and horizontal relationship now has shame introduced. Where right? Then that? that comes then now from sin. Yeah, because there's the knowledge something is wrong. And we're really good in the West with guilt. In fact, we have whole industries built off guilt, whether it be a bottle <coughs> or a program. But in the ancient world, shame was just as big a thing. And so we used to have a German professor at the college who was from Germany, and I used to just delight when this would happen. <coughs> right outside the Modern Languages building, sometimes people would park in the professor spots. Usually a student <coughs> who was in a hurry, and she would, she would write a note and it would say, shame on you. Well, if you know German, shame is a packed word. Germans say shame, and they mean shame. Like you should be embarrassed, <clears throat> right? Um, 
in the ancient world, that shame was, think embarrassment, right? I'm ashamed to show my face, we say in English sometimes. <clears throat> well, Adam and Eve now are embarrassed to be fully known. They're embarrassed to be fully known by God because they have sin. They're embarrassed to be fully known by each other. And so even <clears throat> as husband and wife, um, think about the marital relationship still today with husband and wife. C.S. Lewis says it's almost humorous. You fall in love enough that it's almost funny because you just realize we're like two vulnerable people and the human body's kind of goofy and you're just... <clears throat> but it takes... You have to get comfortable. The fear of being known. And so what does God do to people who have now this fear of being known? He knows them and makes himself known in Christ. Right? Um, and so the idea of, of, of shame is the big idea there. Good question. I don't know how long we normally go for this, but I'm happy to take questions or Pastor Barry can just tell me to leave. But Yes. <coughs> Yep. Very good, yeah. I would say Lutherans probably prefer the word testament in English. Um, a covenant can mean like a contract, right? We have housing covenants. Covenants often a two-way street. In English, though, if you hear testament, what context do you normally hear it in? Last will and testament, yeah. <clears throat> and um, testament is one way that person has decided this is the case. Interestingly, the last will and testament, the testament part um, historically comes from, that's where Christians would make their final confession so that the family would hear about their faith in Christ. Um, and so if you study like the Reformation world, looking at how those testament changed is super interesting to see how beliefs changed. Um, but now we, unfortunately, now the family's largely just gathered to see who gets the snowblower. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It, I got a snowblower, and let me tell you, it was one of the best gifts I've ever gotten. The um, as a fat old asthmatic guy, it's a lifesaver. I'm with five kids who probably should shovel, but it's cold. I'm not going to make them do that, right? Um, so testament maybe is the preferred word because it's a one way, um, but covenant is a good word because what God's doing is making a covenant unlike all other covenants. Right? Imagine if the bank said, here's our housing covenant, here's your mortgage, you do what you want, but we're giving you this money. Be marvelous, right? <clears throat> it's not how my bank works. Um, but, this, the, but covenant can be a good word with that too. Um, testament is usually what we use with the Lord's Supper for that reason. Jesus, on the night he is betrayed, he's going to leave to us what? His body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Good question. Any other questions, thoughts? I threw a lot at you. You made it through a lot. That's the problem. You come for a one-off Bible class, you want to say all the words. Luther used to complain about his pastor, Bugenhagen, who was from Pomerania, which is now part of Poland because Germany had a couple misunderstandings in the second century, 20th century. And uh, <coughs> they call him Der Pomer, the Pomeranian. A lot of Wells people have Pomeranian roots. So if you go to German Fest in Milwaukee, which I recommend, you go to the genealogy tent, you'll see a bunch of Palmer stuff. And um, what he used to say, Dr. Palmer today brought out his treasure bag with all his treasures when it would have been enough to just show one. <laughs> right? So I, I just did that to you. I brought all these treasures. And it maybe would have been better to show you just this one. But then Luther will preach like a 30-page sermon, so pot in each kettle, you know. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He goes on and on. My favorite Luther sermon is for the circumcision of our Lord, and he starts says, "This will be a brief sermon, for it's a short text." And I think it's 18 pages. <laughs> I was warned today. I I emailed Noah and I said, uh, "All right, I got my sermon down to 1,200 words, because I usually aim for like 12, 1,300 words." And he said, "I don't know. We got some people here who could be disappointed. Anything under half an hour." So. If anybody was, I'll come up with a second sermon we can meet outside after. But 
All right, well, I will leave off there. I thank you for um, having me. It, uh, it was a real joy to, um, to be here, um, a wonderful divine service. Um, I thank you for um, your time and your welcome, and I wish you uh, all the best. I am going to enjoy this very warm day. I've heard some people call it cold, and then be back to a, it was negative two when I left Milwaukee, so we'll hope that's warmed up a bit, but God bless and thank you.